Good evening and welcome to What the Friday. I hope you've had a good week and if you're in the southeast, I hope you've stayed safe through all the storms. It's been kind of crazy this week. Now tonight, I'm going to bring you the story of a very little talked about serial killer. It's kind of gruesome, pretty graphic, so I'm just letting that be your warning now. This serial killer, though, he kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered six men in Kansas City, Missouri, and his reign of terror took place in the mid to late 1980s. His name was Robert Berdella. Welcome to What the Friday, an After Dark series presented by Mystery, Murder, and Magic. Robert Andrew Bradella Jr. was born in 1949 to Robert Andrew Bradella Sr. and Mary Louise Huffman Bradella. At the time of Robert Jr.'s birth, the family lived in Ohio, and they were all devout followers of the Catholic faith and attended Mass regularly. When Robert was a child, he was a loner. He wasn't known to go outside and play, and he rarely, maybe even never, had friends over to play. But perhaps he was such a loner because he wore very thick lensed eyeglasses, and on top of that, he had a speech impediment. And Robert wasn't the athletic type either, but his younger brother was, so the boy's father had a tendency to dote more on the younger brother because of that and because Robert Jr. didn't participate in sports Robert Sr. viewed him as a disappointment like many others that we've talked about Robert and his brother were often verbally and physically abused by their father now where Robert wasn't the star athlete of the family he was academically gifted but Robert was not really interested in academics either and that could be because he was being bullied in school Now, around the time puberty hit, Robert figured out that he was homosexual, but he kept that a secret to himself, and he even had a girlfriend during his teenage years. Now, one big issue with Robert was his attitude, and I know, trust me, I know, I got a 13-year-old right now that is just going to be the deciding factor of if, if I grow to be an old lady or not, but, um... I know they have that attitude issue, but he, Robert, he came off as cocky and condescending and that holier-than-thou attitude. But the weird thing is, is it wasn't towards everybody. It was mostly towards women. When Robert Jr. was 16 years old, his father passed away from a heart attack that he suffered on Christmas Day. Now, through his grief, Robert took comfort in his religion and soon started studying other religions. That just led him to become pessimistic towards all religions. And also during that year, Robert had seen the movie adaptation of the book, The Collector, by John Falls. In that movie, the main character kidnaps a young woman and keeps her as his hostage in a dark, dingy basement. Now, after being in that basement for a couple of weeks, 
the woman dies from a disease even though her kidnapper tried to keep her alive. That movie made a lasting impression on Robert. Now, adding to this teenage angst that Robert was going through was the fact that not long after his father passed away, his mom quickly remarried. Robert viewed this as his mom betraying his dad. At that point, Robert became even more withdrawn. Now, after he graduated from high school in the summer of 1967, he moved to Kansas City and enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute. Now, at the beginning of his college studies, he was seen as this attentive and talented student, but by his second year of college, he had become this person who was unable to get away, you know, get along with authority figures. And he also became a small-time drug dealer and became addicted to alcohol, but that's not where his downward spiral in college ended. Also decapitated a duck right in front of some of the other students, and he experimented with sedatives and tranquilizers on this poor helpless dog. And all this happened before he was even 19 years old. And over time, his behavior and crimes got worse, because once he was 19 years old, he was arrested for attempting to sell meth to an undercover cop. And Cordy pled guilty, and he was given a five-year suspended sentence. But I guess that taught him nothing, because only a month later, he and some other students were arrested for possession of pot and LSD. This time, the charges were dropped against them because of a lack of sufficient evidence. In 1969, he dropped out of college, but he remained in Kansas City. By now, he had been openly gay for several years. He began spending a lot of time with male prostitutes and drug addicts and runaways. And he said at one point that he was trying to rehabilitate these men. And he even told neighbors that he felt like a foster parent to them. His neighbors at that time said that even though he wasn't good at keeping up his property, He was very civic-minded. He loved doing a lot for his community. In fact, he was credited with helping to form the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, and he was even their chairman in the early 1980s. But around the mid-80s, he gave up that position. Now, as far as a career, he had taken a job shortly after being arrested to help pay off these fines that he had accrued as a short-order cook and on the side he was also selling antiques and this obscure art that he had became in possession of. Now, at first, this antique and art business operated out of his home, but soon both his cooking career and that side business really took off. He became the head cook in several highly acclaimed Kansas City restaurants, and as his antique business began to flourish, He started devoting more and more time to that. In 1982, he opened a shop at the Westport Flea Market, which he called Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. And there he sold and traded like primitive art and jewelry and antiques. Now, somewhere along the way, Robert became acquainted with a fellow shop owner named Paul Howell. And through Paul, he became acquainted with Paul's son, Jerry. 
At first, Jerry and his friends would make fun of Robert's homosexuality. But later, Jerry told him that when they were hard up for money, he and his friends would work as male prostitutes. Now, over the next year or so, the Howells moved their shop to a building in town, and they lived in the apartment above the shop. And they stayed in touch, but most of the time it would just be arguments between Robert and Jerry as their only means of communication. Well, sometime around July the 5th, 1984, Robert and Jerry were back on speaking terms. So Robert picked Jerry up on the pretense of taking him to a dance contest in Miriam. Instead of taking him to the contest, though, Robert supplied Jerry with loads of alcohol and Valium and Acepromazine, which is an antipsychotic. He kept giving these to Jerry until he was unconscious. And even after he was unconscious, Robert injected him with a really heavy tranquilizer and then tied him to his bed. Robert left Jerry there, tied up for around 28 hours. And during that time, his week, he was repeatedly drugged, raped, tortured, and violated with foreign objects. When Jerry was conscious, he begged Robert to stop and to set him free but his pleas fell on deaf ears. And Jerry died from either choking on his own vomit or suffocating from the combination of the gag in his mouth and the medicines that Robert was giving him. Robert then dragged his body, Jerry's body, down to the basement where he hanged him up over this large cooking pot made several incisions in Jerry's elbows and jugular vein and left him there overnight to drain him of his blood. The next day, Robert dismembered Jerry's body with a chainsaw and bowling knives, wrapped each section in newspaper and trash bags, and then placed those in larger trash bags. Those bags were taken out to his outside garbage bins to be collected with the trash and taken to a landfill. So as you can see, Robert is pretty sick. The following April, he claimed his next victim. A 20-year-old man named Robert Sheldon, who used to live there as one of Robert's tenants, just showed up on Robert's doorstep. He was looking for somewhere to stay short-term. So Robert let him stay there, but he soon became a nuisance to Robert. On the afternoon of April 12th, Robert came in from work to find Sheldon intoxicated in his home. And it infuriated Robert so much that he decided to take him as his captive, drugged him with some sedatives, and kept him in a bedroom on the second floor of the home. Torture was inflicted on Sheldon by swabbing drain cleaner in his eyes, inserting needles under his fingernails, and binding his wrist with piano wire, and also filling his ears with caulking. I mean, what makes you even think to do any of that? God, to carry it out, Jesus. Well, three days later, a workman came to do some scheduled repairs to Robert's roof, so it left him no choice but to suffocate Sheldon. 
Later, he dismembered Sheldon in a bathroom on the third floor of the home. Well, only two months later, Robert found a man that he kind of knew that was seeking shelter from a storm out in his tool shed. Well, the guy's name was Mark Wallace, and just as Robert had done with Sheldon, he invited Wallace into his home. Well, Robert noticed that Wallace seemed really tense and depressed, so he offered him an injection of chlor chlorpromazine. Sorry about that. And that's another antipsychotic. Now, I don't know how he got his hands on so many antipsychotics. Um, it sounds like he was pretty crafty about that. But anyway, he told Wallace that it would calm him down and relax him. So Wallace accepted his offer. 30 minutes later, Robert had taken him captive. Robert carried Wallace to a bedroom on the second floor, and from there he was tortured around the clock. Robert attached clamps to his nipples that he used to send electrical shocks through Wallace's body when he felt that Wallace was becoming conscious. He also experimented by sticking hypodermic needles into the different muscles in Wallace's back. An hour later, Wallace was dead. Now, after Wallace and over the next three years, Robert claimed four more victims, and each time his torture became more brutal. On March 29, 1988, at 1 a.m., Robert kidnapped his last victim. Christopher Bryson was a 22-year-old male prostitute that had been lured to Robert's house with a promise of payment for sex. Once they were there in Robert's home, Bryson was knocked unconscious with an iron bar. Once he was out cold, he was tied to a bed where he was tortured in many ways, including having his eyes swabbed with ammonia. Robert began trusting Christopher and by the third day, he trusted Christopher enough that he was persuaded to tie his hands in front of him instead of above his head. And he also asked Robert to leave the television on in that room. The very next day, Christopher was able to escape by burning his bindings with a book of matches that Robert had left in the room by accident. And from there, he jumped from a second floor window wearing nothing but a dog collar, and in the process, he broke his foot. Across the street, Christopher could see a meter reader, so he started running towards him, and the whole time he's running, he's screaming for him to call the police. Well, the, the meter reader led him into a house close by where the owners called the police for him. Once the police were there, Bryce, or Christopher, he told him, or told them everything that Robert had put him through over the last day or so. He told police how he was repeatedly sodomized, drugged, and he had drain cleaner injected into his throat to keep him from being able to speak very well. Now, Christopher was quietly driven to a nearby hospital while they had two police officers stay in the neighborhood to keep an eye on that house across the street. Well, after receiving treatment at the hospital, Christopher was questioned more at the police department 
and one detail that he gave police was that Robert had shown him photos of other men who appeared to be dead. On the same day that Bryson had escaped, Robert was arrested on charges of sexually assaulting Christopher. And when the police arrived at Robert's house, Robert wouldn't let them in the house, but it wasn't long before they had obtained a search warrant. And once they were in the house, investigators found evidence that corroborated Bryson, Christopher Bryson's statement. And so, you know, I'm sure it probably sounded pretty far-fetched until they had that evidence in front of them. They moved on into another room of the house and they found a human skull in a closet. And in the backyard, they found a partially decomposed head. Other random body parts were found scattered throughout the house. Among evidence that was found were 334 Polaroid photos and 34 snapshots of victims, including Christopher. Some of those photos have been taken as the torture was taking place. And perhaps the most damning evidence of all was a notebook, or actually several notebooks. But they found these notebooks, and it contained they all contained like a log of all the torture that Robert had inflicted on his victims. And they also found in one of those notebooks a newspaper clipping that contained stories about the missing person the missing person's case of Jerry Howell, which was Robert's first known victim. And in the beginning, Robert was charged with felonious restraint, but one uh, and one count of assault and seven counts of forcible sodomy. But as all this invet- forensic investigation results started rolling in, more charges were added. The skull that had been found in the closet was proven to be Robert Sheldon's through dental records. And on the same day that Sheldon's identification was confirmed, two men called the Kansas City Police Department saying that one of the men in the pictures that had been released to the media was a high school friend of theirs, and that high school friend's name was Mark Wallace. Well, the police then contacted Wallace's sister, and she told them that he had been missing since around mid-1985. That head that had been found in the backyard would later be identified through dental records as Larry Wayne Pearson, Robert's sixth known victim. And on July 22, 1988, Robert was formally indicted by a grand jury for the murder of Larry Wayne Pearson to which Robert pled guilty, and that really took the judge and prosecutors by surprise. Now, while he was under oath, Robert confessed to the murder of Pearson, and he gave details on his death. Before that charge, he was sentenced to life without parole and taken to Missouri State Penitentiary. Apparently, after he had been there for a little while, there were some concerns about his safety. Oh, brother. But anyway. And he had to be transferred to Potosi Correctional Center. And on August 24th, Robert earned a second life without parole sentence for the uh, charge of forcible sodomy against Christopher Bryson. Now, 
To the other five murder charges that he was facing, he pled not guilty, but in the end he agreed to a plea bargain. If he would confess to who he had killed, how he had tortured them, how he had killed them, and where he had hidden their bodies, the prosecutors would agree to not pursue the death penalty. In December of 1988, Robert pled guilty to first-degree murder charge on Robert Sheldon and four counts of second-degree murder on the other victims. For those charges, he received five more life sentences without parole to be served concurrently. Those life sentences wouldn't be the longest in the history books, though. Four years after his sentencing, Robert Berdella passed away at the age of 43 from a heart attack. And the judge who had overseen the court proceedings has been quoted as saying, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. If Christopher Bryson hadn't escaped, I wonder just how many more victims Robert would have claimed. And I also wonder just how many other victims have met their demise at the hands of Robert Berdella. Now, Jerry Howell was his first known victim. There could have been victims before Jerry. And there could have been other victims between all these others. But I guess we'll never know for sure. And this story reminds me a lot of the Dennis Nielsen case that we talked about some months ago. Um, I think that, like, that some of the serial killers, like... Nielsen and Robert Berdella and others, they like to keep trophies of their kills and maybe even have that some sort of sick attachment to the bodies of their victims. But in the end, their trophies serve as evidence that puts them away behind bars. I will never understand the reasonings that people do the things that they do. But... I guess there's just some things that are meant for us not to understand. Well, that's all I have time for tonight. I know this was a graphic, dark episode. So, how about go meditate or watch something funny to clear your head before you go to bed. Don't forget to come back in the morning for the weekend weird files. Good night, everybody.